Father, we pray that you would answer that prayer even this morning. You are worthy to be praised in every thought and deed, every thought we think and every deed we do. Father, our minds, our bodies, our very lives and our breath are yours. We're reminded as we prayed for young children this morning that you make a person and you give life. And it is incredible, uh, the bodies that we inhabit and the people that we are. It is an incredible work of your creativity and your power and your handiwork. And we pray that our whole lives as they were made by you and for you would be given over to you. Father, we don't naturally want this. We want ourselves at the center of our lives. We don't want you at the center of our life. And we need by your word and your spirit for you to do a work in us this morning. We need your spirit to divide down to body and soul. We need your spirit to cut into our hearts to do surgery. Father, we pray that you would conform us more this morning into the image of your Son. We know that that one day all of our thoughts and deeds will be to your praise and glory when Jesus comes or when we we meet him at death. Uh, But we pray that you would work in us now so that we might be more conformed into the image of your Son. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. Well, take your copy of God's Word with me and open up to the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 44 this morning. Transformation. God will do it in the new creation. But what about here and now? Is deep change really possible for us here and now? Some comments before the reading. Uh, There are days when we're all too comfortable with our sin, and we just don't ask that question, and we aren't interested in that question. Uh, Cain was all too comfortable in his sin of envy. He didn't want it any other way. He was even warned. That's how he came to take Abel's life in the field. Joseph's brothers were all too comfortable with their sin of envy. That's how they came to, so to speak, take Joseph's life. It's how they came to tell their father who tore his clothes before them in grief, their own father, and they stood there heartless with their brother's coat covered in an animal's blood, lying to their father. They'd never see their brother again, and they were okay with that. Neither would their father, and they were, they were okay with that. It's how Judah, in particular, among the brothers, came to visit a prostitute years later. That chapter 38, if you remember from months back, was pretty dark chapter. Uh, Judah was at a pretty low point. He couldn't tell, though. He was entirely too comfortable with his sin. Dishonest, promiscuous, and a hardened man. But there are other days, if we belong to the Lord, when we properly hate our sin because we belong to him, and when we long for an answer to that question, is there true transformation possible in the here and now? And more than changed, we want to be radically different, transformed on our best days. Yes, it's possible, friends, and every page of the Bible's story of true and lasting change is true. And it is a story that tells of the change that God brings about in the lives of his people on the way to glory. It might not sound like that at first, but Genesis 44 is is about just that. It's about more, but it is about just that. Let's start by reading the first six verses of chapter 44 together. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. 
and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? And by this that he practices divination, you have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. For those of you who are in education, either being educated or educators, uh, you will be well familiar with the concept of a test. One of the ways, though not the only way, to discern an individual's development in a particular subject or change in in, uh, their their work is through a test. Uh, These are imperfect tools, but important ways to prove development, to prove change. Tests prove. They do a second thing, though, which we'll see before we're done. Joseph is testing his brothers. Three parts to the sermon this morning. Test materials, test questions, and test findings. Test materials, test questions, and test findings. Test materials, verses 1 through 2. He commanded the steward, we just read, uh, put the money back in their sacks. Put my silver cup in the sack of the, of the youngest. A test material, a silver cup, or I prefer other translations, a little bit older, silver goblet. I always wanted to say goblet from the pulpit. Maybe I didn't always want to say goblet from the pulpit, but as soon as I read it this week, I wanted to say goblet from the pulpit. A good test, a good test is one designed so that the findings are not ambiguous, but conclusive. Joseph has run one test on his brothers already. Our chapter opens up at night. Uh, previously, in a previous chapter, a long evening of eating together and drinking and being merry and enjoying one another had gone on between these brothers and Joseph. Of course, they don't know that Joseph is their brother yet, just a, a man a step down from king of Egypt. They're invited into his quarters uh, by surprise, and they have gotten comfortable there. Joseph fed his guests well, but he fed the youngest, Benjamin, you'll remember, five times as much food. A little signal of favor on the youngest, a test to see if they would not be willing to handle favor being shown to the youngest, something they weren't able to handle years before. Would it provoke them to envy? The brothers were merry with their youngest brother, and apparently five times the food, and more importantly, the favor of that respected leader, host, uh, was of no trouble for the brothers. Well, that's a good sign. This initial test was revealing. It showed that the brothers were not hostile toward Benjamin and that they were not bothered when he received special favor. But it was not conclusive. It pointed in the right direction. And so Joseph designs an even more precise test, a test precisely designed to show very specifically who his brothers are today relative to who his brothers were 20 years ago when they sold him for 20 
pieces of silver to traders passing through. The best way to see change or the extent of change in precise terms, we could say, is to run the same test a second time. And what happens here? Joseph will reconstruct the original scenario. He puts a silver cup in the youngest brother's sack. What is the steward thinking at this point? He was told to put money in their sacks the last go-around. He must have thought that was just good old Joseph being generous, if you remember and were with us. But why is Joseph giving these men a silver cup? That would be not a normal silver drinking cup. This was his cup, his goblet, probably on a special shelf, in a prominent place within, within the room they just ate together in. Perhaps it seemed like generosity still. Well, if he didn't know what Joseph was up to or that Joseph was up to something at this point, he found out in quick order that something else was cooking. He would find out when Joseph gave him the test questions. The steward would be the proctor. Verses 3 through 17, test questions. We have questions in this section running in every direction. There's dialogue between the steward and Joseph, and then between the steward and the brothers, and then between the brothers and Joseph, and every other line is an, a question motivated in different ways. The bags were packed late at night. It's morning now, and the brothers are packed and ready to head out just past the city. And it's at this time that Joseph issues some questions to the brothers as they have now headed out. Verse 4, Joseph said to the steward, up and follow after the men. And when you overtake them, ask them this, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. The steward did just as Joseph ordered, and so in verse 6, he overtook them and spoke these words to them. I don't think that we need to believe. I'm not sure it compromises anything of what we're trying to accomplish or the author is. If Joseph actually was involved in Egyptian practices of divination here, I don't believe that he was. He seems to be playing a part of an Egyptian leader very well. In the next chapter, we'll discover that he seemed to be doing just fine spiritually. In any case, no no reason to overread into this. Uh, It does heighten the suspense. It does heighten a sense of confrontation and stakes, and it is maybe the best thing in terms of size and stakes that he could stick in their bag. These were loaded questions, loaded with assumptions. They were meant either to entrap them It's like saying, have you stopped stealing pens from the office yet? Yes. No. Either to entrap them or to provoke them, gaslighting them, to stir them up. Surely they were provoked. These questions provoked questions of their own. Verse 7. How did they respond? By interrogating the steward, they were offended. Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks earlier, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? 
What would motivate you to come after us with these words? What has gotten into you? This is silliness. This is way beyond us to do it, and you know very well this is beyond us to do such a thing. We brought the money back. We have our integrity. These are loaded questions. They set them off balance. They're unhappy about them and offended, and they kick back with questions of their own. And with these questions, the brothers defend themselves. A steward's accusation is entirely unreasonable. Why would they steal Joseph's cup? Well, there's no question in their mind as to their innocence. How sure are they? Sure enough to bet their lives on it. Verse 9, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. So, all right, if you can find the cup, the one in whose sack you found it, you can kill him. And then you can take the rest of us. We'll be your servants. Now the steward responds. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. That's interesting what he's done here. He's lowered the stakes. Um, I guess that's nice of him. He's lowered the stakes, but he's done a little bit more than that, as will become clear. He has also sharpened the test. He has also molded the circumstance to more carefully fit a previous temptation and experience. Consider that they have offered their lives, at least partly because they are sure they will not have to give their lives. But now if in fact they are found with the silver cup, they are not all bound to servitude as they promised, but they will go home save one. They will go home as they have before without one of their brothers. That wasn't such a problem 20 years ago. Would it be a problem now? Well, maybe it depends on which brother they have to leave behind. Or maybe it depends on who they are now, some 20 years later. The punishment has been lessened, but the test has been sharpened. The inspection is an insult and they're eager to prove their innocence. Verse 11, then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And you can see this happening one by one. I kind of imagine a TSA situation where everyone is getting called over here to unpack your bags. I once had a little thing of hair product Thank God for our TSA servants, if one of you were a TSA servant. But I had, I had some hair product, and, um, uh, and it was like this big, and it, I don't know. It, they said it was, a, it was a liquid, but it wasn't a liquid, but maybe it qualifies as that. In any case, sometimes you get taken aside, and then you get shaken down, and your stuff gets upended. Reuben, how about you first? Simeon, Next. Shuffling through the bag. Nothing. Of course there's nothing. We didn't take the goblet. Levi. Then Judah. Then Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. Issachar and Zebulun. Check, check, check. The brothers are feeling vindicated. They're offended 
but they are not anxious. And then verse 12, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. What will they do with Benjamin? It's not like all eyes were on every brother at the same time. Here it is in Benjamin's sack. Multiple choice. I suppose they could say good riddance. Dad's favorite was given five times the portion at last night's dinner, and we were cool with that. But he has the audacity to take the cup? I mean, all of Joseph's generosity. All of Joseph's generosity. And he takes the cup when he's been so generous, and now we're all in trouble? In fact, if the steward had not adjusted the penalty, we would have committed ourselves to servitude indefinitely. Lucky he won't be killed for it, only taken away. Can you believe it? It will be terribly hard on dad, but it is what it is. Well, that wouldn't have sounded terribly different from what we had 20 years ago. Maybe the only improvement is, is they're all getting along a little better as they were the night before. They're, all of their thoughts aren't hate toward him, but they can be provoked to let him, to let him go. That's multiple choice option number Letter A. Option B. Perhaps they will believe that it was a setup. Perhaps they'll believe their brother's innocent. He's innocent. They don't despise him. Clearly, they didn't despise him last night, but neither is he worth risking their own lives for. That would be an improvement, maybe thinking the best of their brother, not despising him. But now they're weighing some costs involved. Option B is they, they return home grieved with a true story of what happened and a best interpretation of Benjamin's own place in this. Grieved, but without Benjamin. And they tell their father what happened, hard as that will be, uh, and they grieve with him. Instead, here's what happens. Verse 13. Pulled the goblet out. And they tore their clothes. Remember how the father tore his clothes at learning of Joseph's death? All the brothers tear their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey. And they returned to the city. No sharp words to Benjamin. No hightailing it out of there. But mourning. And then together they returned to the city in solidarity with one another and this youngest brother. That's option C, an unexpected response. But the questions are not over. We've heard some loaded questions and some defensive questions. Now some questions intended to rouse, intended to rouse from Joseph for his brothers. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground a third time. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now what will they do with Benjamin? No doubt their hearts were pounding. Will they defend him and themselves? Surely 
These guys know how to defend themselves. They do. They've done it before. They defended themselves when they arrived at Joseph's house for their second visit from Egypt to Egypt. They knew they were innocent. They did not want to be accountable for trouble they were not making. And so they offer a clarification. We've got the money. They defended themselves there. Earlier this very day, they defended themselves to the steward. They told the steward exactly what they thought of the matter. What will they do here before Joseph? Well, let's see. When Judah said, speaking now for the brothers, spotlight on Judah, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whom the in whose hand the cup has been found. How can we clear ourselves? You might say that with innocence still, but then what does this mean? God has found out the guilt of your servants? Where did that come from? Does he think Benjamin actually stole the cup? I don't think so. Is he being disingenuous? rolling with the accusation, confessing the guilt as a way of getting a lighter sentence. I don't think it's that either. These are questions of a guilty conscience. These here are questions of a roused conscience, a conscience that has been for years chased by guilt, chased by shame, God has found them out. You may find yourself in circumstances that don't really have anything to do with something that happened 20 years ago. And yet you feel found out, chased and haunted by your own guilty conscience. You know there's a God you've offended. You've hidden the matter. This circumstance of theirs is unrelated. They think to the circumstance of 20 years ago. But it's as though they've just given in. God found us out. Joseph, however, whatever name by which they know him, from their perspective, doesn't know a thing about what happened years ago. But they know, and they're resigned to it. And maybe that's why they just hand themselves all over. Just take all of us. We're your servants. They can't take it anymore. Does Joseph take them up on it? Verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And so as the steward had done before, Joseph does the same thing. He lightens the sentence and he he narrows, sharpens the test. He's in effect, at this point, perfectly recreated the original scenario All of the conditions are perfectly right for the betrayal of the youngest brother. But this time there are two differences. This time they have a reasonable explanation for why he would not return with them. They could actually go home and keep their integrity. And this time the cost is actually much higher for bringing him home. However, they would get that done. The lure is not 20 pieces of silver in this instance. The lure is their life and their liberty. 
what will they do with Benjamin? What will they do with their youngest brother? Test materials, test questions. We've carved our way through some dialogue now. Now, test findings. We began with Joseph and the steward, and then the steward with the brothers, and then the brothers with Joseph now, and now the focus moves to Judah. Judah comes up to Joseph and speaks into his ear, and attention, our attention closes now around Judah and his brother Joseph. And this last half of this chapter is one continuous speech. One continuous speech. It's not dialogue. It's the longest speech we have on human lips in the book of Genesis. That should signal to us that there's something to come across to us in this speech in three parts. A looking back and a looking forward and an offering of a, a solution. Benjamin was found with the cup in his sack. God found out the guilt of his servants. What will Joseph find in the heart of his brother? responsible for this sale. What will we find out about God's purpose to transform his people? What will we hear in this speech? What could he possibly say to Joseph to rescue his brother Benjamin? He begins with a look back, verses 18 through 29. Listen for the man under these words. Then Judah went up to him, to Joseph, and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My, my Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. What have we found so far in Judah's speech? What will Joseph have found in addition to learning what happened when the brothers went back home and the story that was told and the experience of their father? Well, we found that Judah is a changed man. Good indications of it here. The focus of his attention is on his brother and father and not himself. 
word on himself, he could just as well have hightailed it out and headed home or thrown his brother under the bus at a last-minute change of, of, uh, of spirit here and headed home. The focus of his attention is, is concern for his brother and his, his old father who is his near death. The temperature of his heart is warm. It's not cold. Hear how he speaks about his brother, the one whom his father loves, and his father and his gray hairs and his frailty and his broken spirit over the son whom he lost. Consider that even warm toward his father's favoritism of Benjamin. These words betray a warmth, of, a warmth toward the father's favoritism even and favor on the children of Rachel. Well, this was not the case so many years earlier. You remember that Jacob had children by different ladies and liked them, liked the kids differently according to how things had gone. The temperature has changed in his heart. The focus of his attention has changed. And now part two of his speech, he's looked back and now he, he looks forward. So that being the case, verse 30, now therefore... As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant has become a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, why should, why should Joseph care what happens to Judah or what he might get blamed for? Why should he even care about how things go down when things are found out home, at home? Well, Judah isn't so naive as to think that Joseph will just do him a favor. Like he could offer this story and say, Uh, Do me one if you could. It'd be great if you could work this out for me because it'd be so painful for my my family. Uh, That's more than he should expect. So what will Judah say next? His speech isn't over. What will he say next? He wants to go home with all his brothers, including Benjamin. How's he going to pull this off? Or will he pull it off? Or does he even intend at this point to pull it off? If Judah truly loves his father and his brother, what will he say? Or better, what will he do? From Joseph's perspective, what could Judah do that would prove a genuine transformation? Part three of his speech, verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I fear to see my father's face so sad, so broken, so grieved. I fear to see my father so grieved as to die from the news. Take me instead of the boy. The man who engineered his youngest brother's sale 
is now the man who engineers his youngest brother's salvation. The man who despised his brother's favored place now offers himself in his brother's guilty place. His father's favoritism was a reason for killing. And now his father's favoritism, no excuse on that sin, but for Judah is a reason for laying down his own life. The man whose heart was cold with self-centered envy has become a man warm with love for his brother. Judah, after chapter 38, whom we never thought could change, is a transformed man. And God has done it over many years. How did it happen? How did it happen? Well, we can say a few things. We can say at least three things. It began with his own humiliation because of his sin. You might remember how chapter 38 concluded. His disgusting proposition, an engagement with a prostitution, prostitute who was his daughter-in-law, was found out, and he, even if in a subtle and inadequate way, acknowledged it and acknowledged her innocence. And right there, at the point of his humiliation over his own gross sin, his transformation began. I don't think chapter 38 is there merely to suspend the storyline between the time we meet the brothers and they sell Joseph and the time we see Joseph at the top. I don't think it's there merely, although it is, to provide a contrast with Joseph who will keep his integrity and who will be sexually faithful. It is there to do that. Judah's story, that detour of a whole chapter, which was so dark and was For that reason, a hard sermon and chapter to preach on its own actually resolves beautifully in Judah's own life in the climax, which is this half-chapter-long, beautiful speech betraying his transformation. Judah's transformation began with his humiliation. Find yourself in a humiliating place. Feel in your worst moment when you're when your view is narrow, that it can't get better from here, that it doesn't get better from here, God can do this. Proof's on the page. He doesn't just promise it to us. He shows us. A second thing in answer to question, how did this happen? Um, It advances to this point because of the test, the test which actually aroused his conscience. This is the second thing the test is for. Remember I said tests are are designed to prove something. Uh, tests are actually built for more than, than that. They're useful to produce something. A test also offers us a path, and that's what the Lord was using it for. Remember the words of James to first century Christians. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds covers the gamut. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Well, praise God for trials because they, from trials come steadfastness and trials are what God is using to complete us. God is using your trial to complete you, to strengthen you. Trials of various kinds. Tests reveal transformation and tests actually accomplish transformation. They come in all forms. The normal consequences of our sin and the normal, even if terrible, troubles of life all test our faith and transform us into the image of Jesus. Judah's conscience was greatly troubled by the trouble that befell him. He lived with a lingering certainty that he has crossed his maker. Did he offer himself up for his brother from pure sacrificial love? Could it have been also from a sense of shame and indebtedness? Yes, probably both. But if he offered his life from genuine shame, it was nevertheless also an act of genuine hero- heroism. Little did he know, as one has put it, that his most illustrious descendant, because the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, that his most illustrious descendant, in no way prompted by shame, but obedience to the Father and love for the guilty rebels, would offer himself with the purest of motives as a substitute for them. And so John can write this to first century Christians, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That is the third place that true transformation starts. And it's the necessary place with the power of the gospel and the life of the Christian. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That ought that ought, ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, it is true. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And it is impossible if he has not first laid down his life for you and for me. And so we're a gathering this morning of those who have been transformed and are being transformed by the truth that the one and only Son of God sent from heaven has laid down his life for his friends. And that's what explains so many of the beautiful things that take place in your relationships as brothers and sisters as a part of our church. That's what explains why next week when we have our family meeting, we're going to read that covenant of fellowship together. And by God's spirit, we actually mean, imperfectly, we actually mean to keep it together. Well, that's a miracle. Where else can you find a people on earth like that? Only where the gospel has taken root and is at work to transform a people. That's the third explanation. Or to use the language that Genesis has already given to us, it is the steadfast love of the Lord that transforms us. No, Judah was not the first to discern this. He had heard the stories of the steadfast love that transformed his father Abraham and was patient with Abraham and bore with Abraham. He heard of the steadfast love of the Lord that bore with Isaac and was patient with Isaac. And he he knew more up close the steadfast love of the Lord that was patient with his father Jacob 
and bore with his father Jacob and transformed his father Jacob. And here it was transforming him. That's a pretty encouraging finding from this test, if you ask me. How encouraging to know, friends, that transformation is actually a part of salvation. It's encouraging to know that lost sinners can not only be found, but that God does not leave us where he finds us. He finds us where he finds us to transform us. We don't look for our keys and find them to leave them in a crack of a couch as if we only wanted to know where they were and not use them and not keep them and not take them with us. God is conforming his people into the image of his son. And in a simple way, a provisional way, and in an incomplete way, we see that in Judah's life on this page. And Joseph saw it. Here on this page is one story of transformation. And here in this room, friends, are many more stories of the Spirit's ongoing transformative work. How will Joseph respond to what he saw? And why will he respond that way? We'll take a look at chapter 45 next week when we gather again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Spirit that gives us life. We give you thanks and praise for the Spirit that indwells us and that is our guarantee of our great inheritance. And Father, we give you thanks for the Spirit that comforts us. And Father, we give you thanks for the Spirit that convicts us of sin and that, as we have sung, causes fruit to grow in action, bringing glory to the Son. Father, your grace on the pages of this book of Genesis is amazing. It is sweet to hear it. It is sweet from my place to preach it. Father, make us to know it and help us to know it better as we sing it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.